The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. I'm coming to you live from the Upright Digital Studios in Houston, Texas. I am joined with you, or joined as usual with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Greetings. Hello, Mr. Pickering. How are you, sir? I'm great. I I had to take a jolt of caffeine this morning because I'm just back from Vegas for the weekend. I think uh, in 48 hours, I slept about four. Yeah. So I am I am wired right now and ready for a, a good recording. So you left on Friday back on Sunday? Correct. That is the maximum amount of time allowable in Vegas. Yeah, or, you're, or you go broke really quick. It's, it's, it's just broke and then broke in, right? I mean, you just, you kind of feel like, oh God, I got to get out of this town. Even if you're winning, you still got to get out of this town. I, I don't know that feeling, yeah. that winning feeling, but lots of good good meals and go with a couple what, of buddies I've been going for a long time. Oh, so. you want some buddies? Yeah. What games or what's your what's your go to? Do it all. My my favorites are believe it or not. Um, I love craps. Yeah, the that's dice a fun game. one with yes. a bunch of buddies. And then um, there's this weird Chinese poker game called Pai Gao. Okay. That I like to play. So those two maybe make a few sports bets. Did anybody win? My two buddies win one. So. Somehow I found a way to, to pull defeat from the jaws of, of victory. Nah, yeah. Again, I'm I, I like Vegas. I'm more of a pool party guy at Vegas because I just I just go hand them money and be like, all right, this is great. Thanks for having me. We I've I've never done the pool scene, but um, my my Achilles heel is I show up Friday. I'm so excited to be there. My buddies typically, I mean the the liquor starts flowing, and then by dinner time, yeah. I'm I'm practically done. Everybody yes. blows their water. There, no one has any energy yes. after night one. Yeah, you're yes. you're lucky to survive. Well, it's good. You look great for what it's <laughs> worth. You don't there look we tired. There we go. Well, Welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. <laughs> let's speak, speaking of power, let's talk some power here. Let's let's yeah, get into this. Let's let's rock and roll. So today we have Neil Dykeman. Neil, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Uh, you're the founder and one of the two portfolio managers at Energy Transition Ventures. And so I just attended your annual meeting and you, you had a great, I think, turnout of institutional investors. You had an interesting lineup of your portfolio companies. But before we talk about all that stuff, who are you, man? Tell us about Neil. Real, before you go there real quick, I'm not sure you could have scheduled a better post-Vegas guest. Neil, is this energy level is going to save us all. That's right. This was perfect timing. He's you know, built you up, Neil. Yeah, pressure on. I, I like on. talking. The rest of y'all are the ones with the problem. Yes. Yes, exactly. Welcome. Thank you. 
so who who am I? Who who are you? And tell us about energy. Come on, man. Transition. I'm sitting in the presence of the famous Dan Pickering. Yes. You're like well, the fixture in Houston on all topics energy. Well, yeah. we're, we're, we'll see if that's the case I'm, as we dive I'm, into. I, I told Josh, I feel like I'm just the prop on the show. This is awesome. <laughs> that's my spot. That's your spot. Yeah. You're the prop. Yes. So I'm the product, or I'm, I'm anyway. <laughs> yes. Save us all, Neil. Look, I'm. My family's been here since 1837. Yeah, here, Houston? in Houston. I'm okay. sixth generation. Of course, back then they, it was Montgomery County. Houston didn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I grew up in town. I grew up in in the West Side. Out, yeah, outside of yeah, outside of the Loop. I didn't really understand the inside of the Loop stuff existed when I was growing up. Yeah, the uh, and I, you know, went to A and M, came back to Houston, worked in an oil and gas investment banking. Bankers Trust, if you remember that brand from back in the day. Whole bunch of really awesome people. Yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was just a little peon analyst and the, the managed to actually, you'll appreciate this, Dan, get through the interview with the head of MA, and I won't name him because y'all probably know his name, without knowing what the word MA meant. Mm. Don't think I ever told him that. Yeah. But I survived nice. it, whatever. So ended up working there for a couple of years. And then What was your what, what was your undergrad? Are you an engineer or are you Dan, I'm a history major. There we go. Bankers okay. Trust had screwed up their hiring so bad they had to go up to A&M to pick up a history major to, to fill the analyst slots. Okay. They, we, we had like eight MDs and VPs and one analyst when I got there. I mean, wow. they, those did not, that does not make an MD very happy. Right. So I was there for a couple of years and wasn't sure I wanted to be pigeonholing energy. Wasn't sure I wanted to be in investment banking. And so I need to do something new. I went out to California. Well, ex Alex Brown partner had fund out there doing manufacturing turnarounds. And I show up at the height of the dot com boom in nineteen ninety nine to work in manufacturing turnarounds about food and like welding and in the valley. Okay. This is not the smartest career move I've ever made, but I didn't know anything. And I stayed there for a little short period of time and I'm like, you know what? I either gotta go get into tech and go spend all my time hiking outside in the hills, or you can't afford to live here. You gotta go home. Mm-hmm. And so I was gonna either buy a valve service company on the south side of town or jump and i ended up jumping into a fund behind yellowpages.com and a few others before you jump in i want i was actually in california that exact same time in manufacturing and i did some research on it. i was selling tubing wait for, which company were you uh i was selling for a company called uh maryland specialty wire and then uh, uh leonard industrial steel so we were doing small diameter tubing for the semiconductor industry. Yeah, this is what this is what these guys we, we bought one of those businesses. So I was gonna plant in Hayward, you know, helping out CFO for Remember Valex and those guys up in uh like the Ventura area? Yeah. And Webco. Do you remember any of these types of like very I don't small remember that name, but we were yeah, we were very we had some aerospace product that we do for a couple of the and and then uh, some gas boxes for land. Well, plot. and I just I heard some stuff that you were doing to prepare or while I was preparing for you and you said one of the things you said was Oh, I've got to get out of the uh, manu- the manufacturing space in Silicon Valley. Oh. In 1999 was not where you wanted to be. I, I love thinking, manufacturing. Don't get me but wrong. But not in Silicon Valley in the late not 90s. Not bending tubes in 1999 yes. when everybody you know is in a tech startup. Right. Right. And so it was, it was cool. It was awesome. And I like manufacturing still to this day. Three of the four companies we've backed are box companies, I call them. We're, we're building product. You know, so it's, it's awesome. But, you know, that wasn't what everyone was doing. So if I was going to do that, I need to probably go to a heavier industrial area. And great so it was a great place and really neat company the most interesting company on that portfolio was op ocean pacific i was the corporate secretary for ocean pacific for a little while there the 
Wait. Surfwear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wow. And so, so it's really cool, really cool companies. Calpers had backed the fund. And so I jumped from there into, that was my kind of entry to the buy side. And then I jumped from there into venture with this fund behind yellowpages.com. And the, I, I, I actually joined that firm the day NASDAQ fell the first time. My timing is just oh, wow. not very good. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, you know, it was, a, it was a good, a little bit of run there. And then my boss there and I like, yeah, we want, we want to go do something. Tech Rex happened, right? What are we going to do next? So we pulled the team together and spun out and set up a firm called Jane Capital to do basically the same stuff, but we didn't know what sector because software was dead. And so we had Macquarie Bank as, as our first client, and I was the advisor with Jane and my partners to Macquarie's tech fund for a number of years. And we kind of stumbled onto clean tech in 2001 because, you know, I knew the only thing I knew was energy. And I was, remember, I'm a little investment banking peon, so I didn't know that much yet. And my partners had kind of come out of the environmental industry before they got into tech. And so we kind of understood the stuff and we weren't going to see the best things in software IT. And that was almost dead. And at least this area, we could see something. We could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond and see the top tier. And if in venture, if you don't see the top tier stuff, you, you, you're done. So we just stumbled onto clean tech and we had this tiny little company that was making green portfolio company. We were a little seed investor okay. and make, they were making green shielding for electronic devices. So normally you take a little board and you got to make a Faraday cage to keep the things on the board from interfering with the other things on the board. And so back in the day, you'd, you'd like weld a little tin can or steel can over it, or you would paint it with some conductive paint or whatever you need to do to make the, make the board work. And these guys had figured out they could put it on plastic and make a little plastic Faraday cage with, with vacuum basically just like you make a bowling trophy. And that product didn't do that well, but we IPO'd the company. And after those two kind of set the stage for, for my career. We were like, you know what, we're, we're smart, we'll go do more deals. And off Macquarie experience, we kind of learned, the Macquarie had a model of picking up and porting things from you know, Australia and moving them over to the US and seeding them in, at home. And then we'd, they'd raise around up, up in the US and kick them out of bed. And my partners had founded probably 20 companies before between them across their, their career. And so we basically stumbled into helping corporate venture arms not do something stupid, and they'd pay us a lot of money to do that. And, and then we would cherry pick for our seed fund. And we hit probably, in the, and what we found out was, you know, it's hard to find deals that we like. So we'd end up basically taking little fallen angels, fixing them, and, and launching companies. And we probably launched six, seven companies out of there, you know, from ground floor. Uh, Two in smart grid, one in superconductors, one basically designed to pick, fix the Texas grid problems, but nobody in Texas will buy. We IPO'd both of those. Uh, carbon software, fuel cells, solar. One of my teams, you know, working for Meridian Energy, the New Zealand state-owned power company, we built one of the very first utility-scale power plants in North America. It was five megawatts. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, that was like number eight on the list for mm -hmm. a brief shining moment. Yeah. And so we did a so whole this bunch. Is what, so this is like 01 to? 2000. I moved back home to Houston in 2010. Okay. And I was still working with my partner, Jane, for a couple of years there. We had picked up Royal Dutch Shell as a client. We were helping them figure out how to do clean tech strategy and launch the new venture fund that eventually became Shell Technology Ventures. Okay. And basically, they caught me at a weak moment and asked me to eat my own killing and come help launch the fund. So I did. I'm like, you know, haven't worked in a big company since I was, you know, at Bankers Trust. Uh, 
You know, this is a nice company. They're really smart. There's a lot of cash here. It's a corporate venture. It's not, you know, my bread and butter. But hey, this is this really good, good group of people. Nice access to some big deals, I would imagine. If if you can do venture, you can get access to deals. Okay. So yeah. it, it didn't bring you any other deals that were, no. Well, my job is to help Royal Dutch figure out how to maneuver the battleship, basically, okay. if you're corporate venture. Yeah, the, and the big difference between corporate venture and venture capital, venture capital is a simple business. I get paid a fixed fee for you know, 10 years to go manage a fund, and then I get paid 20% of the profit if we hit things. And so you're swinging for fences. We re used to refer to it as elephant hunting with a shotgun. Yeah, and the, in corporate venture, it's a bit more of kind of a professional middle management role, right? You usually don't get paid a big a piece of the upside. Yeah, uh, the decision process has layers to it. Yeah, there's a strategic flavor. Yeah, so there's a number of other things that go along with it. But it was a blast. And Shell just happens to be a natively very, very smart company. I worked with people that had 100 plus patents to their name. I mean, it's just awesome. So kid in a candy store and yeah, a bit of a vacation for a couple of years. And yeah, um, but I wasn't ever going to be long term in a large corporate. Did you know that going in? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. So you said, I'll do this. You said, caught me in a weak moment, um, <laughs> but went in-house, stayed a couple years. I was there almost four years, yeah. Okay. And you said, time to go back to the venture roots. So I helped launch the oil and gas fund, the clean tech fund. We had a fund of funds, and I was working on launching the spin-out fund. And the spin-out fund was super cool. I was going to get create things out of Shell Labs. Well, that's hard to get things actually spun out of a big corporate, even though Shell Labs had more technology than God. And so I found one like, all right, we're going to spin this out, and I want to go with it and run it. Great. Well, the guy running that program yeah, decided he wanted to be the CEO. He's a really awesome guy. And um, uh, he was kind of in charge of that area. And so it was very clear who was going to be, who was going to win that little political battle. So he mm -hmm. and I sat down, and I said, Ben, I, you know, I, I really – I really don't want to go work for a company if I'm not going to go run it. And he said, I get it. Not a problem. I need you to help me get this spun out and up off the ground. I said, great. This is a great tech. I'll do it. And so my swan song there was helping spin out a company called Salamander Solutions, which happened to be, and Dan, you'll remember this, Shell's oil shale program, mm -hmm. the in-situ oil shale, where Shell had figured out back in the day there's not enough oil in the whole peak oil craze from the early 2000s, and we're going to need more reserves, so we're going to get them. Well, the heavies, there's plenty of them. You just can't get them out. My, heavy oil. The heavies, yeah, um, yeah, and oil shale, enough resource to power us forever, right? My father-in-law actually worked at Tosco when it was the oil shale company. He was the youngest of the uh, R&D heads for Tosco way back in the day. So I knew a bit about oil shale, and Shell had figured out how they didn't have to mine it and put it through some retort. We just shoved heaters into the ground and cooked the ground, made the rock the retort, and built the refinery underground. And among the last things I got to do at Royal Dutch was watch sitting in our little you know, uh, Gasmer R&D facility, watch our guys produce basically diesel straight out of the well pipe in Jordan. Yeah. Jordan, the country. Yeah. Shell owned a, the rights to oil shell under Jordan's like a third of the country, one of the richest seams in the world. And I was really excited. I'm like, look, we can, this elect, we're making electric heaters. We can electrify that stuff. And we can take, plug in a green grid and basically make low-carbon diesel. This is awesome. Yeah, but Shell wasn't interested in anything that had to do with heavy oil anymore. So we spun the tech out. The yeah, company raised some money um, yeah, and eventually sold off, did reasonably well for, for the investors. And we had found some applications that were not oil shale because nobody wanted to fund the billion dollars it was going to take to try a, a, 
uh, platform program that big, we figured out you could do things like production enhancement. You go take you know Canadian cold producer and shove a heater down there and move it up the viscosity curve and triple or quintuple production just like that for not a lot of dollars. And you can do the same thing with wax control and asphaltine, subsea tiebacks, all sorts of neat stuff. So that was this, the last thing I founded. And this mm. is important to the story because when I got back here in 2010, I'd been founding companies. It is hard to found companies in Houston. You can't get the teams. So really the only one that I managed to found was the one that we spun out of Royal Dutch with that team that was like, hey, we want to go take our shot on goal. And it, it's, a, it's a tough, tough town to pull a startup team. Yeah, so part of why I'm back in the venture game is because it's hard to launch a new tech startup. So, right, we'll just run some money. Launching a venture fund actually may be easier than launching a tech startup in the city mm -hmm. of Houston. Mm -hmm. But what really happened is old old friend of mine that I've been trying to get to join me years ago named Craig Lawrence. And Craig was the clean tech head at Excel Partners back in the day, which is one of the big granddaddy yeah, venture funds in the Valley. Very, very awesome fund. And they wanted to dabble in the clean tech, and so they stepped in. He'd met me when I was blogging. I was blogging for a clean tech blog. I was one of the big talking heads in the clean tech sector for a little while there. And uh, he um, tried to actually come blog for me, and I think I turned him down. I still have the original email, though, where he, he, go, he goes to asking. And um, he had managed to take one of my more snarky rules on how you don't lose money in energy venture, yeah, written for a bunch of alley people that can't spell refining. And he'd managed to hit two deals and only do only two deals there. Sunrun and O-Power. Category killer in solar and the category killer in software and clean tech. Yeah, so I thought he was brilliant and I'd been wanting to do business with him for a long time. So he calls me up about two years ago. I had left Shell, launched a real estate fund with my family office, doing some really neat little historic preservation stuff and, and ran for US Senate, won the Libertarian nomination and got beat very badly by Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Um, that's another whole podcast we can do. And Craig calls up and he's like, hey, I've got this investor out of Korea and they want to come to Houston and meet some people. I'm like, sure, I'll introduce you around, not a problem. And he'd been doing some consultant for them and basically this is the GS group. This is Chevron's downstream partner in Korea for 75 years. They run an 800,000 barrel a day refinery called GS Caltex. It's, one of the, it's number four in the world. I mean. And about halfway through this discussion, I remember I helped launch the venture fund out of ConocoPhillips back in the day. Macquarie is working. Shell. I, I, these are you can see the patterns coming. I said, Craig, these guys are going to launch a venture fund. It's just a matter of when and how, et cetera. What do they want? And he said, Well, I don't know. I said, Well, let's go talk to them. And so we hooked up with the guy running that venture fund, Tay Hub, and said, Tay, what do you want? He says, Well, I need help launching my CVC. That's kind of the, the step here. We do energy, retail, and construction as a company. They have a construction company the size of Bechtel and a $10 billion a year retail business that came out of the C-stores that now does competes with everything from Amazon to Home Shopping Network in Korea. And so when you say retail, you're not talking about retail gas stations. You're that's where about it started. And then they just, you know, one of these Korean conglomerates, they just added everything. So it's a powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, you know what? We're not really interested in the construction and retail side. That's not really our thing. Energy is what we're interested in. And... The, what ended up happening was we helped them launch their fund, you know, brought our relationship, our networks, all the expertise we'd had doing it, and they anchored ours. And ours, Energy Transition Ventures, focuses just on energy. Anything that benefits from or drives the energy transition, broadly defined, you know, but largely stuff we like. 
electrification, green hydrogen. We even got a drone company. I see you all got a drone sitting over there on your on your wall doing asset inspections, mm-hmm. and we refer to as kind of the oil field service company. The future is these these drone inspection companies, and uh, so that got us started. We yeah we're gonna go sign our deal when um when the pandemic hit and Seoul shut down. And in the middle of the pandemic, the new chairman who'd come in, he'd been running the retail business and he stepped up to run the whole group. His very first board meeting, his company and Seoul are shut down. Nobody's going to work. He announces, right, we're gonna do corporate venture. We're gonna do innovation. My company's not gonna be a dinosaur. We're going to internationalize and we're gonna do it now, by the way. And so we're approving the launch of our CVC and all the sister companies of the group, you need to kick in too. Go home, we're gonna get this done. Literally February, yeah, when the pandemic had shut the world down. And took six, nine, 12 months to get it kind of going just because of pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, slowed everything down. But February, January, February 21, we launched the fund and we're, we're started investing. And now we got a one guy, a third partner joined us from Korea after that, Q Song, who was running the international investments for GS came over to uh, move to Houston, join our fund, and now he and I are two of the thirty venture capitalists in the city of Houston. Why is it so hard to get a team in Houston? That's a very good question. Why are you not doing a startup? Well, I do do startups, but I don't know if I'm doing the same kind of startups that you're doing because it does. I a mean, good tech startup, you know, where you go raise some venture money and is it, is it hard because the, the people aren't used to a? Is it a different type of employee, a different type of person? I mean. What, what do you, I mean, I am curious, when I heard that, that's what kind of. Well, we just gave a whole talk on this at the ION, a four-part series of, the, and the first one I called Startup Landia, which goes into some of this. Right. And the, I think there's a number of things. The, the normal view of the world is there's not enough capital. Well, this Houston, there's more capital than God. Right. Yeah, the, um, there aren't a lot of venture capitalists. We're really, really thin. When I say 30, I'm serious. We've, we're about to publish the list. There's only 30 venture capitalists total in the city of Houston. Yeah. You're not talking about firms. You're talking about people. I'm talking about people, like people that are actually, you know, a partner, MD level, running a, running a fund, invest actively, investing at any stage. There's only 11 firms in the city total. And, and by comparison, like a San Francisco has how many VCs? There are 2,000 firms in the country, 1,000, 2,000, another probably one to 2,000 corporate ventures of some sort or another. Okay. So we're, you know, we're woefully small here you're saying there are more fortune thousand ceos in houston and more college presidents and three times as many mayors in greater houston area as there are venture capitalists there are there this is the stats i was making up for my this little thing we're going to publish you know there are 650 times as many doctors 250 times as many cpas and 400 times as many lawyers in the city of houston and venture capitalists we are thin so the logic has been we don't have enough vcs well the problem with that logic is VCs are kind of like parasites. We just follow teams and try and give them money and glom onto them. And unlike the PE model, we're not running the show. So we're not taking control of your company. We're giving you, you sell, say, 20, 30% of your company each time. And then you're supposed to go get more money and we keep chipping in and you get more money and sell another 20 or 30% of your company each time as you get bigger and hopefully a couple of several times the price mm-hmm. yeah, as the kind of the, the business accelerates up. Well, the problem is you got to have teams that understand not only how to do that, but good enough to launch a company. You can't do it with a single person unless they can hire a whole bunch of folks 
that have really been through the startup wars before. So usually you need several people that have been through a startup before and kind of understand the rules of the game and are stupid enough to do it because most startups don't succeed. Yeah, so the, I think in Houston, the people that should and could get priced out working for an oil company or a PE, like this PE fund back model we've gotten, Dan, you know this super well. Yeah, the, I mean, what's, what's the standard deal? I bring, I'm a PE fund, I'm gonna get into, we'll call it ENP or service supply or whatever. I'm, I bring you the capital, I commit $100 million or whatever is needed for that. You're never gonna raise money, yeah? I am your money. And you get, what, 10, 20% of the company as a team, you kind of, it's kind of an earn-in model. Right, maybe a third after yeah. a certain hurdle. Yeah. Right, exactly, so it's, it, but it's a, yeah, um, I'm in control as the investor. And you don't really have to form capital because I do that for you. And, and y'all, Pickering, y'all are in this business in, in some parts, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the venture model is the opposite. Venture model, your first check's a million dollars. Maybe five million dollars. You're not making very much money, and you got 12 to 24 months to turn that check into enough traction to go raise more. And then 12, 24 months to go build enough of a business to go raise more. And you're in control. You're the founder. You are in charge. Yeah. I, obviously, you got to take my backing and I got to help you. And if I abandon you as a venture capitalist, you're kind of screwed. But it's your job to run the company. You're going to be in charge of the board. Maybe it's a split board, but. It's not a Neil and his investors running things and you're an operator. So you know, I've had two or three teams that I was really interested in basically tell me they didn't want to take the risk on raising the next round. And I'm like, dude, but those PE funds are going to, I mean, you're never getting more than X percent, right? It's why would you do, why don't you want the shot on goal? Well, they've been trained that that's not the best yeah. model and they're paid a great salary more than they'll make in a little venture startup when they're when, when just betting on themselves. Mm -hmm. Or you go to an oil company. When I left Shell, it dawned me one, one point in time, I was sitting around and I realized, you know what, I, the Neil of, th this place is molasses. It's hard to do the speed and the stuff that I'm used to doing. And the Neil of five years ago just would have told them to go to hell, send my final check. After one of those silly little meetings, just too much internal, what we all talk about in the big corporates. And somehow this HR policy gotten even me stuck. Where it's like, I, I'm, I'm working for a salary now. That's not good. Yeah, Not good for you. Not good for anyone. I was losing my, my edge. Mm -hmm. Just because the HR policies are really good at retaining and keeping great talent to not want to leave. But that's not what venture is. We don't manage risk. We take it. And founders are in the same boat. Founders need to swing for some fences. They need to have an idea, be able to pull a team, be able to raise some money, have some sort of solution to whatever big problem is they're going after. And if it fails, fine. It's a sprint. You do it again. Houston seems to be really good at marathons, and we just don't have the sprinters. You, you mentioned give a million dollars check back in a year. Where does your 270-day theory fit into that? Is that that first million dollars? Oh, so you listen to some of my stuff, my 270-day rule. I mean, I'm I did some research on you. You were you're a good listen. So it dawned on me. Sorry, Dan, if I'm throwing your interview this off. This is here. good. No, this is but great. We we'd go. I go back from back and forth from Houston, the Valley, all the time, especially when I was living, working there, and living here, and then vice versa. And when I go back to the Valley, you know, you go meet a few folks each time you go back. You go back every few months or a couple every few quarter or so. 
And so you wouldn't meet everybody each time. But, you know, I talked to friends. I'm like, what are you doing? They'd have a new story. They'd have a new company, a new product, a new investor. But it was they were never talking about the same stuff that they did the last time we had coffee. And it dawned on me that kind of every three months or so, every three quarters or so, I mean, every three or four months, not enough, not much has changed. But if you hadn't seen them in 270 days, they weren't doing the same thing. When you go to Houston, they are. Because the project's a 10-year project. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a, they're working on a, the same deep water platform. Maybe they've moved around in companies, but they haven't switched jobs. Yeah, and what we realize is it's kind of like sitting in a boardroom where you got the CEO saying every quarter, I got this problem. By the third quarter, he's telling you that problem. The, 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 the real problem is the CEO. Yeah, why hasn't it been fixed or addressed? Or... Yeah, or it wasn't important enough to talk to the board about, either one. And I think startups life really is like this, this 270 day sprint. If it takes a year to do, you should have made some serious traction in a year. Uh -huh. Whether it's with a little money or a lot of money. And you should, you're gonna need longer than a few months to do something. And if you think about it, most venture capital funds will give about two years worth of burn time to a startup. So um, you're burning, yeah, half a million dollars a month, you need, you know, 10 million bucks or so. You're burning $100,000 a month, you need two, three million dollars. And that's what you kind of, you're gonna spend my money, time value money, I'm not gonna give you five years. So instead of the PE fund where I give it all to you and you kind of earn in, I give you two year chunks at a time and I give you the escalate, the begin, the first stage. I give you phase one, two year chunk. And well, at 270 days, if we're on a two year run and we haven't really accomplished anything, you're beginning to run out of time. Mm -hmm. You might have one more 270 day sprint and then you're done because there's not enough time to raise money after that because it takes six to 12 months to raise your next round. So, so you naturally came on that number just by like getting coffee. That wasn't uh, like an old man wisdom thing. No, that some no, guy this, said was, to you. this was me. And you know, when you talk to people, I think a lot of venture funds and startup managers effectively manage their life that way. They just don't use that as a that's rule. That's interesting. That's my rule. That's a, that's a mm -hmm. cool thing to notice. But it was a way for me to articulate to my friends in Houston what's different, mm -hmm. right? 270 days. Well, be like, well, you can't get much done then. I'm like, right. So you need to be, you need to launch a business and focus on the things that you can get done in 270 days. Because stop worrying about 36 months out. Yeah. If you don't get anything real changed in 270 days, <coughs> and that's why the startups will talk about their MVP, you know, their minimum viable product, or you know, and they have these phases and the seed and the launch. And it's because in reality, it's like one of those, um, yeah, like one of those those German board games, strategy board games, you know. Uh, Power Grid, Settlers of Catan, those types of games. The first phase is never about playing to win. Did, did you play that game, Dan? You I have it? no idea. I played <laughs> Dan, Risk as a kid. That's, that's as far as similar I to Risk, but the, the generation. Dan, I need to get you Power Grid. You would love that game. It's basically building and run a power sector. Okay. And the first phase of all these games usually win by like getting points of some sort. To get points, you got to do something, build something, trade, steal something, whatever. But to do that, you need generally resources or cards or something. So the first phases of the game are usually a collecting of resource cards or something before you can play. I think that's the way startups are. In the beginning, you just got to get enough resources to play. Yeah. And 
our Texas model. And by the way, that PE fund model, I don't know about you, Dan, but I think that was invented here. I don't think it's done anywhere else in the world except for Houston at scale. Well, one of the challenges around Houston and energy startups is that you can't do anything with a million. If a well costs $6 million, you're not doing anything for a million bucks yeah. or Correct. three million bucks. But and I can so, launch a company that can go do something. You can, but then you got to find big chunks of capital Absolutely. to go with it. So um, I'm, I, I want to bring it back a little bit to your fund because you've just spent some time telling us it's hard to do things here and yet you're here. So, so what? Remember, my family had been here since 1837. I came home for personal reasons. I wanted to be in Houston. Okay. And I think most of the venture capitalists that are in Houston want to be in Houston. Were, are, are here for a particular personal reason. Okay. They don't, you don't show up in Houston to be a venture capitalist. So I went to the Valley to learn to be a venture capitalist. You're, you're pushing. So, what you're kind of saying is as a clean tech, energy transition, whatever word you want to use, you're sort of pushing uphill to do it from we Houston. just we just invest back in the day there was a 20 mile rule you know you don't fly over a customer you should be able to build your business within 20 miles where you came from venture capitalists should be within 20 miles of you everybody should be there and because it's hard to build a business that's disparate and that if you have to probably you're not very focused and a whole bunch of reasons for that rule those are that was a known rule yeah that started to break down maybe a decade ago. And in clean tech, you definitely could not do that because the world had no center of gravity like it did in the Valley for software. Uh -huh. So, you know, we we just haven't been funding things here. We fund, we'll fund them wherever. We're mainly North America, but I got a company in New Jersey. We you know, spun out of Rutgers right next to New York City. We got a company in LA that is basically, most of their people are all around the, the country. They're they're pretty dispersed. You know, we got a- oh, Wait, your, your New Jersey company does what? That one make, oh, that one's, um, the goal is the complete and utter destruction of my former employer, Royal.Shell. We have a process to do CO2 and water and electrolyze it into monoethylene glycol to make carbon negative plastic that okay. we think we can do cheaper than the conventional process from gas. I am super pumped about them. Okay. So you've got a box you've company. Got a it's a it's a box company. It doesn't make boxes. No, it makes catalysts and puts them into boxes to turn CO two into yeah in, into, into plastics. plastics. Okay, so you got a, a clean plastics company in New Jersey called CCU. You know. Okay, and That's, then what's in LA? LA is our drone company. Okay, they fly drones to go inspect wind turbines, solar farms, utility lines, building roofs, etc. And you as a big company, let's say you got a big real estate portfolio and they got a bunch of customers like that. This is your annual roof inspection. You got a wind turbine, stop the turbine, have a drone fly up, take pictures, figure out where the cracks are. Uh -huh. Solar farm, fly over it, figure out which panels are out. Okay. That sort of thing. So you now, we, now we're on both coasts. Both, both coasts. Have another one in Fremont in California. Okay. In reality, those guys are pretty scattered too. They have you know, 400 odd people, but most of them are in India where our factory is. We have a huge factory building green electro electrolyzers for hydrogen, make green hydrogen um, yeah, from renewable electrons and water. This is a good transition moment to mention that this is all, I looked at your website. These are all listed on your website. Absolutely. In the products section under in energytransitionventures.com. So there you go. That's it's a good, it gives a nice description of all those different companies. Okay. So we've, we've now and hit Elect so we're electrolyzers. Yep. Oh, I missed drones, one. I'm sorry. Drones. Drones. Clean plastics. 
Now, the clean plastic one is also electrolyzers, by the way. Okay. All right. And then the fourth one that we've got, we did with, uh, we brought Amazon in to join us on that one. It is a solid state transformer company allowing us to build EV fast chargers that are a fraction of the size. And, and all this stuff people talk about, oh, there's not enough distribution grid to handle EVs and all that. That's the problem we're solving. And we've got some awesome tech that we're building in a factory in Austin. Okay. Those are our four. We're, we're having trouble. We need more founders, basically. I'd mm -hmm. love to have a few Houston founders I can back here. Anything yep. I don't have to get on a plane to go see my little children. Mm -hmm. And Neil, you've... So you founded four companies. How much capital have you deployed in those? Four so we didn't companies? found those companies. Sorry, we invest in. Yes, right. thank yeah. you. Um, I have four founders. We've yeah, um, we're kind of an average one to five million dollar check in each company. Okay, for the initial checks. Okay, and uh, so if we could, if yeah, the classic kind of seed fund, you'd try and drop one to two million dollars into a company and go on. A rounds are a bit bigger, and and the nomenclature gets mixed these days. But some of the A rounds will be in the 10 to 30 million range and you're gonna have to play with a bit more money to yeah to get a decent piece piece of them okay but we, we try and stay as disciplined as we can so kind of one to five one to five and then do you participate as they continue to yes. raise capital if you you're a venture capitalist and you don't you will lose all your money lose all your money meaning what the companies go broke or oh the next investor will screw you okay you gotta keep you gotta well, keep if i show up and look at a deal and the existing investors are not backing the play and they've been working with that company for two years and they know them better than I'm going to know them for a while, right? There's either something wrong or it means they want me to take, you know, to take the risk mm -hmm. and carry them. And I just, we just, VCs won't do it. Yeah. So when you come in for $1, you usually need to have another dollar or $2 reserved. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, you don't back all your children all the way home. The ones that don't pan out, sometimes you just got to pull the plug. Yeah, and there's a quote that somebody on, on the little Twitterverse was saying the other day that I really loved, that a, a great VC is fine losing all their money in a deal in your company. So, Dan, I give you $3 million. Uh, you raise six. You know, Josh and I each give you $3 million, $6 million round. Yeah, you, you sold 30% of your company. Yeah, um, 25%. So it's kind of a call it a 15 pre-money, 6 million prototypical. You're running this thing and it does not turn out and you are struggling to get another investor in. And the product isn't coming together. Customers aren't behaving. Market turned. Yeah. And so that whole segment is dead, whatever. And you come to us and you're like, great, I need to go raise some more money. Fine. We'll, we'll back you. We'll give you some. We'll take 20% of the next round between us maybe half if we have to go raise the rest come back you know and more investors are in great what price are they going to do well hopefully that's several times the price that we paid mm -hmm. several times that 18 and we'll kick in some and that new investors third diligence call is going to be to me and say hey is dan any good and they're going to say hey what are y'all going to do and if they smell weakness or that i'm just trying to fob one of my companies that's not performing well off on them either they won't do it or take the valuation and divide by 10. Because mm -hmm. these are still young. There's no cash flow to underwrite to. This is a, We're all underwriting to future growth. It's a bit of just a confidence game, and we all got to be in it together, and you're not going to carry me. Now, if I sit there and I say, look, guys, yeah, here's the minimum I'm going to take on this deal, and, yeah, Dan's in charge of raising the money and making the decision, but I'm not letting him raise money less than a certain price because I'll just put it up myself. 
because it is one of my you know my 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 hot little deals and I'm very excited about them. You know the deal the, the company will come off, and so usually you got to be really careful that you're partnered with other investors that are also understand it's a long multi-round game, uh -huh. not a single round game, and you got to understand yeah that the the founders got to get that right because they're your chief salesman. If I got a weak CEO, you know I'm either going to have to cough up more cash or do something about a CEO. And if you have to change a CEO founder, that's painful. Startups don't always survive that. Uh -huh. So that's kind of the, so yeah, kind of the, yeah, always, always have reserves. Now that being said, you don't necessarily have to reserve $2 for every dollar for every company. Cause we may sit down and I say, Dan, this, this is not working out. What do you want to do here? And usually a really good team and company will be able to get the next round out before they really know that. Sometimes it'll happen after the first round, and you'll say, "Look, Neil, I, you know, I'm, I'm not just not getting good in interest." And you made six phone calls, six new investors showed up. None of them are giving us the lean in. I'm like, okay, Dan, well, what are we gonna do? So I can front you some more money, but market speaking. So what are we gonna do different? Do we need to pivot, switch our business model, cut some burn, figure out a new product, go after a new customer with the same product, something? Um, or do you need to just sell the company or do you need to shut it down? And that same little Twitterverse thing was saying a, a good venture capitalist is willing, I'm willing to write off all my cash because every one of my deals should be big enough to make my whole fund. So it's okay if yours and mine doesn't work out. And you would rather know sooner so you can go off and do the next one mm -hmm. or join somebody else's. And it may be, it's like, you know, Dan, we're not gonna get the big hit here. But, and you're almost out of cash. You've got a business, it's just not a big, fast-growing business. So I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you a little bit more money. And I'm not sure our, our, we're gonna get our six million, but I bet I can give you another million and you can get us sold uh -huh. and get us our money back. And hey, I'm gonna go cut you in on that because you're not gonna make any money in that deal. So I'm just gonna go cut you in for a piece of that so that it's worth your time. Let's go get a, yeah, let's get a good, single an exit, or, break yeah. an exit yeah and be good for our customers and and our team and and you and so this, this little twitterverse guy's view was a great investor is willing to put in more just to get his money back uh -huh. knowing he's not going to make the big hit and a bad investor will start to nickel and dime when things aren't aren't perfect uh -huh. we strive to be a, one of the great investors yeah so you're focused on your the name of your fund is the energy transition ventures yes so are you a big believer in energy transition what, what's energy transition mean to you so you and i've talked about this you know we picked this term as a term of art now you probably talk to more corporates and board members and running around in energy that are dealing with energy transition than even i do yeah so i'm going to throw out my theory to you and you tell me what you like bring it all right Back in the day, this was called clean tech. And clean tech had a whole bunch of definitions, but I used to describe it as an umbrella asset class, really as a term invented by media firms to sell stock and venture capital funds to LPs around a collection of sectors that were energy-ish, solar, wind, biofuels, water, all these things were clean tech. It was an imperial term. It would just kind of change its name to agglomerate the new hot sectorish resource energy-ish type sector thing. Okay. And 2008 came and the market hits the wall. 
clean tech, of course, got brutalized as well. The, um, and there was a running sense that people had not made money in it, which was not true. Part of what I did for Shell was one of the first return studies in clean tech. And yeah, the sector performed, but not all the VCs did because a lot of them mispriced risk and didn't know what they were doing. Or they were like Excel, they got out because they had two deals, two hits, but they're like, hey, these are great hits, but we can't build a fund off two deals. As they said, so we're just going to exit even though we had made money. So the, um, uh, there was a war over the term. There was green tech versus clean tech. And then clean tech was just a bad word because most of the cool kids lost money in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since then, these sectors have taken off. And quite frankly, the Tesla alone carried the entire venture sector on its back. The whole thing, not just clean tech, all of them. Yeah. And uh, uh, there were plenty of awesome big hits. So the, the sector starts to reemerge, say, 2015 to 17, slowly. There's very few of us that have been in been it from clean the tech now. You're still calling it clean tech. We we don't have a better term yet, so we're going to okay. still use clean tech. The term energy transition gets coined by John Wellinghoff and a few others when they were doing the energy transition forum when he was at FERC. Okay. And that's about 2012, 2013, first use. Um, yeah, Chris Nelder, who's up at yeah, was uh, uh, doing working in RMI, his energy transition podcast. There's a few people that kind of started using it, but not as a term of art. DNV puts out, and I think, I want to say it's 2017 or 16 or so, the first kind of written energy transition report thing, their outlook. Shell doesn't start using it until basically after I left, probably 2017, 18, and I think coming from RMI. RMI is Rocky Mountain Institute, which uh -huh. started some consulting practices in the area. And so there, there was, you can start to see some heft showing up. Somewhere around the pandemic, the term started to get picked up. My operating theory, snarky, is that boards of big energy companies had figured out that climate change is both an opportunity and a threat, and they need to resource some stuff. They're tired of getting yelled at. They don't want to have a clean tech strategy because that sounds awfully disruptive, like as in they're going to be the ones getting disrupted. And energy transition sounds just slow enough so that we can get a strategy done at the board level so we all won't get fired. Yeah. And just impressive enough that we can put some resource around it. And so somewhere in that 2019 frame to 2021, it starts to get some acceleration. And by 2021, the search terms for energy transition were well eclipsing clean tech. And then when the new funds started getting raised, they didn't want to do, yeah, do, do clean tech as a term. So the cool kids invented a new term, climate tech. But it's all the same thing. Water tech, ag tech, clean tech, energy tech. Back in the day when it was the Enron era launching venture funds in the sector and around DREG and and distributed generation, you called it energy tech, not clean tech. Clean tech hadn't been invented yet. And today, the corporate term of art is energy transition. Well, we're focused on scale, and we're partnered with corporates investing in us. And so we picked energy transition ventures as our term of art to brand around what do we think is important in this sector. Okay. And so do you take a view on net zero and whether the world's going to make it to net zero or you're really being more practical and saying we're going to build companies that take advantage of this opportunity oh i think the world can make it to net zero when it wants to 
And I think we got more tech out there than we need. And I think the cost curves that mattered crossed in 2017, 2018. Yeah, we invest differently than we did before. We believe that renewables are the cheapest form of energy out there, and they are. Yeah, um, their marginal cost is zero or negative sometimes. The average cost is on the floor. We don't see anything really stopping the cost reductions in solar and wind yeah, per kilowatt hour. We don't see anything stopping the cost reductions in batteries per kilowatt hour. Yeah, the, um, uh, we do see the cost of delivering that stuff to where it needs to go, whether it's grid or product or projects. That can get expensive. Power can be expensive. Energy can be cheap. But we no longer invest assuming that you need a green premium. We will not invest in something that we think needs a green premium. We will invest in things that get a green premium or get lots of subsidies. We invested in electrolyzers right before the IRA dropped and made us all look like a genius and essentially took the revenue line of our startup's customers and doubled it off of taxpayer backing. Great for us, great for Energy Transition Ventures LPs. Yeah, um, we didn't think it was needed. Yeah, um, so back in the day, we would only invest in something that had significant support from government subsidy because it was called alternative energy for a reason. It was more expensive than conventional. Now, does that mean the volumes have flipped? No. I mean, you know our grid mix today and our, and our primary energy mix. Yeah, you know where it comes from. But the world has changed. You no longer do renewables because they are green. You do them because they're cheaper. And then you figure out how many you can stuff on and what you got to do to support them. If I had my druthers to solve the world, we'd have a single price of carbon, which I think would solve a lot Globally. of problems. Globally. We failed that when Copenhagen and, 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 uh, uh, and Rio failed or, and, or Durban failed, we, we lost our chance at that. We're not going to get one. Now we have a thousand prices of carbon and they're all over the map from a dollar to a thousand dollars embedded. And so we, we just have to deal with it. Yeah, but if we had that single price of carbon, and if we wanted to build the ultimate ultra-low cost, ultra-resilient, ultra-low carbon grid and energy supply, we'd do things like pile up a mountain of coal over there and not use it. That's our ultimate you know, storage. And then we would flip the concept on the grid of this peak versus baseload, which doesn't make sense anymore. We used to have... Okay, hold on, slow down you, because... You're saying lots of. I, I'm. I'm just sitting here going. We could, we could have five hour podcast talking. We about could, this but stuff. you're gonna have to cut me off at some point. So I'm. I'm stopping you because I want to. <clears throat> you were gonna blast through, base load, versus peak power, and but spend a little time on that. So okay. We pile up coal and don't use it. You just said that because. That's what happens when we have a problem. Well, what if what if you're Germany and. You need, or or Japan with its yep. with its nuclear issue and yep. uh, uh, or Storm Uri, and you need some power. Yep. And you don't want to hammer the climate with fossil emissions. Great. All the time. All the time. Um, we could do it with batteries and very expensive versions of energy storage. But that's a really pricey way to do things for those last hours. <clears throat> that mountain of coal will sit there for a hundred years in the weather, just waiting for us to shovel in. So we may only need it three hours a decade or 300 hours every five years. I don't know, but you don't need it very often. And the yep. climate doesn't care about a little bit of emissions. It cares about the 96 Constant. million tons yeah. of CO2 we put into the air every day, right? Okay. So yeah, um, if you're designing the ultimate world, you build a grid that is completely flexible and resilient, the opposite of what we have today. It's a mesh of microgrids. 
Yeah, the mm. and even the transmission grid is a mess of mesh of transmission grids, highly interconnected, highly flexible. This is the tech that I was building at some of the startups we founded, fault current limiters to basically circuit breakers for the transmission grid that don't break, that simply you know, protect. Yeah, um, uh, and the smart uh, valves, the Fisher E-body of you know, the transmission grid, that's what we were building at Smart Wires to allow you to build virtual transmission capacity and rewrite route electrons around congestion. We put gigs you know, out in the field with that company. And our newest little one, Resilient Power, which is doing the same thing for distribution grids, allow you to make microgrids in a box. Great, so, so we can rewrite the grid, but we're also looking at rewriting generation. Solar power generation. power generation. Solar and wind, as you know, they produce on a curve. And that's what they're going to do. You can't make the wind farm produce when there's no wind. You can store the energy, but you can't make it produce. So instead of being a flat base load, where when there's a spike from demand, you have a peak that you have to fill with gas peakers or something, we've now got an interesting model where the lowest cost resource is actually a peak. And in fact, wind and solar are different peaks. So if you got both of them, it's a couple of different peaks. And then you and, have- And you're saying it's a peak because- That's how the they wind, produce. If the wind happens to be blowing really hard in the middle of the night- That's when, when you're going to get your power. Of, and there's not a lot of demand at that period of time. That makes it but a really cheap But ignoring depend, it is just, it is producing on a peak. Whereas baseload in our world has always produced flat. You just run that turbine flat out. You run that nuke flat out. You run that coal plant flat out, and those are cheaper because they like to be run flat out. Wind and solar like to be run when their fuel is there, but they're free. The marginal cost is zero. So when they're on and you can and you have them, you should always run them. Now we got to fill in the shoulders because that's that's a curve, mm -hmm. and our normal load is relatively flattish with a milder curve. So how do you do the shoulders? Well, you can do the shoulders with lithium-ion batteries. They're ultra cheap as long as you don't need them for a lot of hours. They're really good at the power, right? You said they're really good at the power? At the power, at short-term usage, because mm -hmm. they scale linearly. And as they get cheaper, they're able, when, back in the day when we talked about lithiums, two hours was a long time for lithium, or an hour. There were 15-minute uses, because they're too expensive per kilowatt hour. Because dollar per kilowatt hour and dollar per kilowatt about the same thing for them. So you, but today, people are using lithiums for four hours because the costs have come down and the performance has gotten better. But great, that's still not everything. Now, what about the rest of the peak? Or the, yeah, off, so they can handle our shoulders. Well, you can do that with gas, with CCS, and the better renewables you get, or, or, or with hydrogen, and each one of these come at different loading and cost curves. But it's the reverse. Yeah, and then we do demand response and storage and microgrids in ways that we could not do 10 or 20 years ago. The tech wasn't there, but the tech is now. So if we want to manage our demand in completely different ways, we can now. So we can rewrite generation and rewrite the grid. Now we've got some complicating factors. Hold, hold on. So you're going fast. Um, so what you're essentially saying is we built the grid one way. Four coal-fired power plants for that were 100 years old. Then we added gas to it, which gave us some flexibility because you know you can put gas in them up and different places than yeah. you can put coal, and yeah, uh, and, they're, and they're cleaner, so you can slide them closer to towns and a few other things. But still, we had a grid designed to get power to cities from plants that existed where the energy infrastructure was, uh -huh. and 
that's not our world anymore. You can build solar anywhere the sun will shine. You can build wind only where the wind farms are. You can put battery storage anywhere you want. You can put solar on rooftops or out in the field. That tech doesn't care. And our loads are different than they used to be. So we really need to rewrite our grid, both distribution and transmission. Unfortunately, we have PUCs who can't spell Public any of this stuff. Public utility commissions. Yeah. And my view is the only thing protecting gas in this country are stupid PUCs and bad government policy. Protecting natural gas. Protecting gas from, from renewables. Okay. Yeah. And the, you, if, you, if you had the, the right, not the right like subsidy incentives, but the right structural markets, renewables just wipes them out. Think about this. It's still twice as pricey to put solar on your rooftop here in Houston, Texas as to put it on your rooftop in Berlin or, or Australia. And that's nuts. It, Why is that? Bad building codes, bad local policies. The permits and dealing with Centerpoint to get it on your roof is going to cost you more in Houston than, sol than the solar modules will. The, the, the core tech itself is now almost free. It's $600 a kilowatt hour to put in a, a battery system for a battery that costs, say, $120 a kilowatt hour. The, the, the electrician rolling the truck is more than the batteries. Okay. The, these F-150s that are rolling off the line and will be vehicle to grid, these things, basically the battery is free, or the truck is free, one of the two, because if you went and bought the batteries, you, you, you might as well buy an F-150. That's how, that's how expensive some of the delivery of this primary power mm. to yours in my house is. Right? Okay. How many batteries do you need on your house? Well, it depends not only on how many energy hours you use, but on how spiky and big your load is. Well, it's not very hard. Think about yeah. Think about the uh, the Apollo thirteen movie where they got to go. Yeah, they only got so much power, right. so they got to go like figure out what to turn on and off so they can not breach the conditions that allow them to come back to Earth. Mm -hmm. That's why our houses and our grids are, right? You're turning. So sometimes it's a loading order of, hey, yeah, my, my dryer can't turn on right now because my other stuff is on. It can turn on in four minutes. But if you turn it on, you'll cause your own brownout. We do that on the grid. This was the story in Uri where we have downtown lights on buildings. And right down the road, we had you know, houses without power and people freezing. Why? Because the grid is not designed to be flexible, uh -huh. but it can be. We've had the tech. I have personally founded companies and invested in companies that built and deployed this tech. It works. So you're you're showing us the, if we, if we think about these, if we identify these things as problems, they're systematic problems around how power is used and delivered, then the argument would be that over time, it gets so compelling to fix them that we do. And, and whether it's PUCs or if you're Saudi building NEOM and you know this technology exists and the city doesn't yet, you put all the cool stuff in from the start and they're going to, they're going to not have these problems because we've solved them. We just don't have, we can't retrofit. They don't I, have to I'm retrofit. unclear if one we're going to solve them. One of the things you said was that these PUCs. We can, but I'm unclear if we will. Why? Have you ever been to a PUC meeting? Because status well, quo is so hard. Well, Bingo. Is that the same thing? I guess I'm asking the same well, question because one of the things you said is the PUCs are protecting the natural gas. On accident. 
Okay. Because yeah. that doesn't seem right to me when I hear that. I feel like... I, I think that's less of a political comment and Correct. more of a bureaucracy comment. Correct. Okay. Correct. So things as simple as, you know, um, uh, well, take our lines companies, the center points yeah, of the world, right? We got deregulation in Texas, which is awesome, by the way. It's us in Australia and nobody else has a market this rich and interesting. But our lines companies are, you know, they're supposed to be lines companies. Transmission well, lines. Yeah, yeah, sometimes you ought to put a battery instead of a transformer in a new line, but they can't do it. That they, they can't rate base it. The, yeah, one of the things I talk about why my, our smart wires product, which is this, con, yeah, and this company I founded a few years ago, it's a control valve for the transmission grid. It allows you to adjust impedance along conductors, so change on the network where the power wants to go and let the power reroute itself. And you can do it dynamically. And you can do it cheap. We're talking, yeah, well, I'll give you an example. Yeah, um, their first big customer was National Grid in the UK. They announced one and a half gigs of transfer capacity for the first big install. That installs like 30 million bucks for five sites. And it immediately moved half a, a gigawatt of Scottish wind, like 300 miles from Scotland to England, and created the eff effectively hundreds of miles of gigawatt scale transmission lines for $30 million. But you I, can't I, even put the rate case up to the PUC here for that cash. Just, just the lawyers to talk about whether to propose it is more than the equipment to mm -hmm. solve a multi-gig scale problem. Uh -huh. That's, so do our lines companies know how to do this? Yeah, if you go get a bunch of T&D engineers in a room and you say, transmission distribution engineers, and you say, guys, I need you to fix these power delivery issues we've been having. They'll be like, okay, I'm gonna need a little bit of budget. All right, you can have some budget. They're like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna need to actually go build these things. And yeah, I, can I? Yeah, you, not a problem. They'll give you a solution. There are lots of solutions. Some of them are storage. Some of them are more generation. Some of them are, hey, look, put a gas, fire generation over there or don't turn that one off because that's what's allowing us to accelerate these renewables on this side. Gas and solar don't have to fight. So Neil, there's lots of ways to potentially fix it. Yes. Um, We're optimists because of that. Yeah. And so what what companies are, are you creating? You talked about smart wires. That was the one I found and not in my current portfolio. Right. But so how are you looking to take advantage of, if we think about bureaucracy and opportunity, that there should be an arbitrage there that smart VC guys and good founders should be able to, to take advantage there of. There should be. And, and this is actually really hard because a lot of the smart founders, you know, they haven't been through a rate case. They yeah. don't know 50 people in a transmission and distribution company. They don't know a whole bunch of people in an oil company. They, they don't, one of the interesting problems with our world, my startup energy tech world, is the energy companies and the startups don't actually talk very much. They think they do, but they don't. And the, the more you fix that, good things can happen. Because one of the fascinating problems for a startup is a lot of our companies are delivering products, but they're delivering them through projects. Now, as Dan, you well know, our energy companies and the infrastructure businesses here in Houston are really good at projects. I submit we're not very good at products. And one of the opportunities is when a startups that are building a new great product can learn how to play in project world, really good things can happen.
Yeah. But so that should lean toward the, I mean, the CVCs, then the corporate venture capital guys should have an advantage because they have project capability and they have scale. They may not have product. And that's where the venture. The challenge company. with corporate venture capital is you tend not to have people that know how to go build startups because building startups is an art. Just like building an EMP company, you need people that know. You back somebody to go do that, they, they know their stuff. Yeah, they've been through 15 of them before and it's old hat. Uh -huh. The same thing is true about just creating and launching and running a startup in any sector. In energy, we are pretty, still pretty thin on teams that can do this. So sometimes it's really just hard to get that join. Um, what we believe the energy sector here in Houston has a lot to offer is, yeah, a lot of our startups, they're going to build product and they need customers to talk and engage with them. And a lot of those customers look like a project developer or an EPC or an infrastructure player that is going to need access to product and they need to know what that product can do so they can figure out how to design a project that's going to take five years. And when you get them talking, really good stuff can happen. But if you don't get them talking, the project people poo-poo that because they don't want to take new tech risk and they don't understand where it's risky because they've never met someone who builds electrolyzers for a living. And the startup people will talk about how they're going to disrupt all of energy without thinking about, well, this is a really big system. How do they actually get And to, to disrupt it, I need to get a whole bunch of projects done. Yep. And in our favorite sector of the world, like electrolyzers, a project is actually a midstreamy looking thing with a bunch of pipes and valves and storage tanks and, and, and distribution and all that sort of stuff that has product boxes that need to go into it, but it's also power dominated. So it's really a solar development project that happens to manifest through that. The big cost structure in electrolyzers for hydrogen is the electron cost, the kilowatt hour cost. Next one is the capital cost of the equipment but the project complexity looks exactly like a midstream developer would do. I, I want to ask you, just, I'm going to step back just a second on one of the things you just said. You were talking about, I'm, you, you said something about how the founder versus, or not versus maybe, with a project manager. You know, we have a product that was hard to, working with like an Italian to the American buyer, right? The American buyer had a hard time learning how to buy from the Italian supplier. So we had to do a complete, you know, here's what it looks like, here's how you buy, here's what it, you know, here's exactly how to import. And we laid it out for the buyer to understand how to get that. Do you have a startup you didn't tell me about? Well, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to get into that. I, I would. Oh, no, we're going to get into that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you more offline here because it's, it's. But no, I mean, no, we're going to get into that on the podcast. This is great. <laughs> this is gold. Well, but I mean, what we did though is we had to lay it out for the person, the buyer to how to buy our product. And once we did that for the buyer who wasn't, I don't want to say sophisticated, just wasn't used to buying an international product, it became very easy for them to understand how to do that, right? And I'm, the reason I'm bringing that up is when I'm listening to you talk about a founder <coughs> with a project manager, or you, you mentioned the EPCs of the world, have you ever sat down with and explained, like, here's what this could look like? I do it all the time. And, and, and is it not taking place? I mean, is it not clicking? I mean, what am I, because that feels Look, very um, anybody can be solvable an, to me. One of my, <laughs> one of my scientists used to tell me anybody can be an expert on anything given five years, which is very uplifting until you realize that also means there's a learning curve on pretty much everything of five years. And in startup world, go to market, and this is a go to market problem. If you're in SaaS, they all talk about product market fit. 
Software as a service. Software as a service. A little, that's the hot Dave startups. Dave is killing the acronym game today. I appreciate he, that. He's that's, literally keeping us on. Yeah, he is. He yeah. is bringing everybody back and to it. It's, it's all about product market fit. But in energy, product market fit is not as quite as important. The tech has to work, and it has to be cost-effective. And what we've said is, in energy, technology is actually cheap. There's a lot of it. It's like pennies all over the ground. The expensive part is the bending down and picking them up or the go-to-market. And a lot of times, a great tech and energy, you know, can't ever get to market because the go-to-market doesn't work. And sometimes it's a regulatory PUC bureaucracy problem. Sometimes it's an energy companies are just slow problem. Yeah, sometimes it's a yeah international problem. There's a number of issues, but we spend a lot of time worrying about our go-to-market in energy because we think scale-up risk and go-to-market are where the bodies tend to be buried. So that that is consistent with your comment that lithium batteries are cheap, but getting them where they need to be and implemented in a system can be expensive. Yes. Which is a great place to draw a conclusion to part one of this podcast and tease for part two. Dun, so dun, we're going to... We're going to explore a little bit more in episode two or part two of this podcast, um, how you get to market. And I know you have some exposure to things like you talked about electrolyzers and you're playing around with hydrogen, which feels like it's early. So I want to understand how you're going to take something that feels expensive and make it cheap. So Neil, I want to say thank you. You're not going anywhere. Josh is not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We're, we're going to wrap this episode and record the next one immediately yes. but but our it. listeners are gonna have to wait a week That's to get even part two. better i yes, love that we're teasing them so neil thank you for being here my pleasure this vegas has done this has been a right. good trip for you it has you, it, you're just killing it today. Uh, it has, it has we'll see you next me. week yes. audience sounds great thank you neil